Before I go away overseas, I like to look at the Smart Traveller website uh, to see what kind of situation I am heading into as I travel, in particular to Southeast Asia, for example. Does anyone else do that? You check the Smart Traveller website? Only a couple of you. Okay, you really should. Uh, it's really, really important. So when Katie and I were looking at our honeymoon, planning for our honeymoon, we looked at the Smart Traveler website because we were traveling to Bali. That's where we wanted to go to do a surfing honeymoon. And as you might know, as you all, I'm sure you know, in 2002, there was a terrorist bombing in Bali. And so therefore, we thought we'd better check out the website to see what kind of situation we were heading into. And the website said to us that we should exercise a high degree of caution. When you go to that website, the very first thing that it says on there is be informed, be prepared. And so we went there, we looked at that website, we looked at Bali, and we saw that therefore we had to be careful. We were informed, we were prepared. The risk of traveling to Bali was being caught up in political instability, personal security, terrorist attacks, all the usual things I keep seeing when you look at Bali. Uh, but since the, uh, the website didn't advise us to reconsider our need to travel, which was the advice in some other parts of Indonesia, we decided we will go ahead. We will travel to Bali uh, for our honeymoon. Uh, knowing the risk, we were informed, we were prepared. When we come to this passage this morning, Jesus is doing something very similar. He has been absolutely at it with the Pharisees, exposing their hypocrisy, their lack of compassion, their lack of humility, their failure to respond to Jesus as the king. This is all done and said in the context of Jesus heading towards Jerusalem. He's going there because he must go. He must go there to die on the cross. He will go to the lowest place to save us from our sin and defeat its power over us. And we read in our passage this morning, as he is going there to the lowest place to die, we read, large crowds were traveling with him. Once again, the actual word used here is not the word travel, but the word go, coupled with the preposition with. So it would translate it as large crowds were going with Jesus. It's the same word that Jesus himself uses to describe his journey towards Jerusalem back in chapter 13. It's the same word used in this chapter in verse 10 to describe the shape of this journey as he heads towards the lowest place. And now Luke employs this word again, by no accident, I believe, to highlight that the whole crowd is going with Jesus towards the destination of Jerusalem. But perhaps they don't necessarily understand what is waiting for them there, what it entails to follow Jesus on this journey. They haven't checked the Smart Traveler website to see what could be waiting for them. And so Jesus begins to speak to them about what they should expect along this journey. And if Jesus were using the same kind of language as the Smart Traveler website, he would begin probably with a warning, reconsider your need to travel. And perhaps to some, he might say, do not travel. In other words, the road Jesus is going on is dangerous, costly. You need to be informed. You need to be prepared of what it might cost you. For if you go on this journey unprepared, then you may not make it in the end. This is a crucial moment for us, for all of us here who want to go in the way of Jesus, who want to follow him. No matter where you stand with Jesus this morning, whether you're on the road already with him, or you're not sure yet if you want to join on that road just yet, we all must reflect upon this. What does it cost us to follow Jesus? 
as he breaks down what we ought to expect along the way, along this life journey with Jesus, he is doing so, he reveals himself, who he really is, and therefore what he requires of us as his followers. So to begin, let's look, what is the cost of following Jesus? If you look at verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Did you just hear that? Did Jesus really say, hate our families, our mother and father, brother and sister, even hate our own life? Does that not sound suspect to you? What is he getting at here? How could he be saying that? If Jesus is suggesting, literally, we ought to hate our families to, to follow him, then that would run contradictory towards what he said back in chapter 10, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Even earlier on, to say that you ought to love our enemies and to do good to those who persecute us. So that's not a literal call to hate. We must clarify that. Jesus is using the word rhetorically. He's trying to bring across the force, the strength, that if you want to follow Jesus, as Judy mentioned, Jesus must be your first love. You must pledge allegiance to him before anyone else. He was to be placed before the family and community. You see, in our 21st century ears, this sounds really strange and problematic, but we must understand this is a first century context. This was no small thing in the community in the first century. Being devoted to your family and community was the norm, but following Jesus meant alienating yourself from your family, forsaking them. It wasn't like you could ask your family, oh, I'm just going to follow Jesus right now, and they would be like, yeah, it's fine, you do that, you go adventure, you go, that's cool, just leave us behind. No. Following Jesus meant complete disruption. This didn't merely have the potential to cause a breakdown relationship with those closest to you, it did. And it did to the point where genuine hate and contempt would exist between family members and within the community. The modern comparison are those Christians living in Egypt, in Syria, Iran, uh, in parts of China, who have been rejected and disowned by their family for following Jesus. Some of whose very lives are threatened because they have rejected their family's tradition and beliefs and made Jesus their first love. I can remember being at Chatswood at my previous church and I had a couple in my Bible study group and they were from Iran, they were refugees, and they were following Jesus for like three or four months. They had just found Jesus, and they were so excited. But they were really nervous, because the husband's brother was coming to work in Australia for 12 months. When in fact, in reality, he was coming to check in on them, to see if they were still faithful Muslims. And I remember them telling me that the only time they could read their Bible and pray was in secrets under the sheets at 12, p at 12 a.m. in the morning while he was asleep. That was happening in Chatswood. That is the cost of following Jesus for so many people in our world today. So if these Jews here desired to be accepted and loved by their family, not willing to be hated, they wouldn't make it as followers of Jesus. So the strong language here is to highlight that, that one, they're not following a, a guru or a celebrity. It's not like following someone on Instagram. No, they are following a Lord and King. Jesus requires them to pledge their allegiance to him and to him alone against all others. And so following Jesus is costly relationally. 
but not just relationally, it's also costly in regards that demands that we be willing to sacrifice our comforts and our desires, all the things that we might enjoy in life, in fact, to deny oneself and to be prepared to die for Him as well. If you look at verse 27, And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. When we hear calls like that to come and be prepared to die, alarm bells start ringing, I'm pretty sure. We think of cultish leaders who demand everything from their followers, which, and, and they promise them so much in return, but they never deliver. And so we think such kinds of people are risky and not worth following. But what makes Jesus any different? What makes Jesus different here? Well, you see, Jesus himself will die for his followers. Jesus himself will give himself up that we might be saved from our sin. He doesn't simply call us to follow him, but to come after him. That's the literal words here, not just follow me, to come after him. He will go where we will go. So he will go first towards death for us. And he says, if you want to follow me, you must be willing to follow my path as well. In our world, Jesus is either seen as like an ancient life coach who brings good news to people that everyone likes, or after reading this kind of passage, like a cultish leader who wants to trap us in a life of misery and pain for selfish gain. But neither of these are correct or right. Jesus came to establish the kingdom of God in a world oppressed by the power of sin and death. His purpose was not to enslave us for his gain, but to give his life so that we can be free to live the life of the kingdom of God in this world. A life of freedom and joy and peace and love. But it's a way of life that runs against the grain of the way of the Pharisees and the way of this world. Their way of life is the one that leads to enslavement. And he criticizes the Pharisees, calling them a brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs. He is no friend to the establishment. He exposes them for who they really are and their hypocrisy and how their way entraps people of a life of misery. The cost of such a posture towards the establishment is death for Jesus in Jerusalem. And so aligning oneself with this Jesus guy was to align yourself against the Pharisees to align yourself against the establishment. And this meant you had to be willing to pay the same cost that Jesus was going to pay, to carry your own cross, so to speak, until yourself was nailed on it. If leaving the family was difficult, then those who wish to follow Jesus must reflect if they are willing to live a whole life of rejection and disownment from the community and the people around them, even to suffer death itself. Those who had dreams of comfort and easy life needed to leave those dreams behind and, and deny themselves. They had to let go of the benefits of their job and vocation, being close to their family, being liked by those in their family and society, trading it all in to follow Jesus. This was what life was like in the first century. This is the cost of following Jesus. These are the things they needed to be informed of prepared for. These are the things you might find on a smart traveler website if Jesus were to post what it was like to follow him back then. And so it would be foolish to jump in on the bandwagon, to blindly follow Jesus and not be aware of all these things and what it might cost you. And to highlight this foolishness, Jesus gives us two illustrations. We're counting the costs and reflecting on our ability to make it to the very end is the obvious thing you do. 
before deciding to do something that's really important and big. And so he says, talking about building a tower, he says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? Talking about a king going to war, Jesus says, or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? The answer is, of course he will do that. Of course the builder's going to count the cost. Of course the king's going to determine whether or not he's going to win with 10,000 men against 20,000 men. That's just the obvious thing you do, and that's the whole point. Just as a builder won't build until they can work out if they can count the cost, or just as a king won't go to war until he knows he can win, a person ought to, won't follow Jesus until they know they can make it to the very end. Now this is all great. You've just heard what it costs to follow Jesus. But what exactly is the cost of following Jesus in our Western secular world today? Because many of us find it difficult to answer that question. I mean, my family, my wife's family, are both, they're all both Christians. We don't have to have that kind of discussion about uh, what we do on Sunday mornings or afternoons, Christmas and Easter. They love the Lord, and so there's no contempt or hate between us as a family. When I, uh, I don't suffer a lot, I live in Manly, a very comfortable part of the world. And even as a minister, and I tell people I'm a minister, they say, wow, that's so great. That's, that's so good for you. That's so good that a young man is a minister, and I tell them, you need Jesus to be saved. And they're like, yeah, that's great. They just kind of nod their head. I'm like, I, I'm trying to carry my cross, and it's not easy. And it's difficult to... To do that. And unless your experience is otherwise with your family and your friends and your workplace, it's difficult to recognize what exactly is the cost of following Jesus in our Western world. But I don't think it's because there isn't a cost. There is. And we need to look again. What is the cost of following Jesus today? The best way to describe what following Jesus looks like for us today, that is similar to the, 20, to the first century, was that it was disruptive. Following Jesus is disruptive. Jesus came in between families and communities, traditions and beliefs. He brought disruption to the normality of the Jewish life, to the way of people thought about their relationship with God and with the community around them. And so when Jesus calls us to follow him, his call is disruptive. The plans we have for ourselves or children, the dreams we have of a comfortable and easy life, the benefits we enjoy in fitting in this world and enjoying the benefits that come with, with that, all come to a sudden halt. As Jesus comes in between all of that and says, stop going in that direction and start following me. He's not a bandwagon we can jump on and off when it suits us. Someone we can retweet or follow on Instagram and like when he gives us some really good inspo. Nor is it simply enough to believe all he said and just to live differently. On Monday through Saturday. Now, the call to follow Jesus is a disruptive one. It disrupts our entire life. It's a call to abandon the way of this world and embrace the kingdom of God. It's a call to forsake all others and pledge allegiance alone to the king of this kingdom. He died and rose again, not simply so that we would escape the evil of this world and have the forgiveness of sins, but so that we can begin living the life of this kingdom in this world showing his way to the world around us that desperately needs to know that way. 
And so if we take seriously and believe that Jesus died and rose again from the grave for our sins to establish his kingdom, then we will take seriously the call to live that life of the kingdom in this present world, which in a world that rejects Jesus is going to be disruptive and costly for all who follow him. Even in the comfortable, beautiful world of the secular West, following Jesus is disruptive. Jesus teaches his followers to view their freedom not existing for themselves, but for the good of others. He teaches that we should love our neighbor as ourselves, to do good to those who persecute us, to love our enemy. He teaches that sex is designed to exist only in marriage, and that marriage between a man and a woman. He teaches that we should view our money as something we hold onto loosely and be generous with, again, for the good of others. He teaches that no one is good and we need the forgiveness of sins. He teaches that he is the only way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to him and be saved. So only through him can they come to him and be saved. To subscribe and embrace and embody all these things that are a part of following Jesus will disrupt your life. Because this secular world runs in the completely opposite way. All these things I've mentioned, they label as dangerous, intolerable, archaic, backwards, not progressive. It will cost us a lot of benefits and comforts, the dreams and the privileges that come in living in this world. And the reason, perhaps, why you might not feel that it's costly to you to follow Jesus is because perhaps you haven't let him disrupt your life the way he intended to. And what happens then is instead of following the king of this countercultural kingdom, we end up following the Jesus of our imagination. The Jesus who says that your li- he can, who can fit around your life comfortably the way you want him to. Who doesn't make demands of you. Is okay of white lies and the sins that don't really hurt any people. That encourages your self-indulgence as a form of self-care. That says it's okay to have sex with that person as long as you're not hurting anyone and you love each other and it's fine. Who doesn't disrupt your life in any way that would make things harder for you. We either follow that Jesus, the Jesus of our imagination, or the Jesus who comes to disrupt our life. The difference is to ask, what cost does it follow? What is the cost to follow this Jesus? Is he disrupting the way you view your money as something to be used for the good of others? Is he disrupting your dreams and passions that might get in the way of pursuing a life of love and humility, righteousness in the service of others? Is he disrupting your desires for comfort and security that might mean you don't end up being accepted and liked by those around you? Or having the dream home or car or job? Or was was Jesus saying yes to all those things? Indulge and enjoy life to the full and whatever you see fit. The Jesus of our imagination won't cost much to follow. But the real Jesus who calls us to follow him says in verse 33, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. That's the posture of following Jesus in the first century, and it's the posture of following Jesus in the 21st century today. In a world that says you can have it all, name it, claim it, relish in it, buy it, enjoy it, 
Jesus comes and disrupts all that kind of pursuit and says, no, follow me. Be prepared to give it all away, to gain something far better, namely me. So let me ask you again, which Jesus are you following? The Jesus of your imagination or the Jesus who disrupts our life? Because here's the thing, although it might not cost you a great deal to follow the Jesus of your imagination, the likelihood is that, you, that if you are, you won't make it to the very end. And what it will cost you is your eternity with God. What will happen is that the Jesus of your imagination will fail to come through for you. He will crumble before you. And when you're left with the real Jesus, he just won't cut it for you. We'll become like salt that loses its saltiness. If you look at verse 34, it says this, Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is to be thrown out. Jesus loves using salt to illustrate all these points, doesn't he? Throughout the whole Bible, he loves using salt. Salt had many uses in the ancient world as a preservative, as a fertilizer, as a seasoning, my particular favorite. It's a seasoning for food. I love it. You cannot have enough salt on chips. I just love it. Also, did you know, bakers would cover the floor of their ovens in the first century with salt to help the fuel for the fire. And eventually, over time, the salt would lose its saltiness, but that was expected after so much baking went on. But as a baker, you would want to make sure you had the very best salt, the creme de la creme of salt. And so, therefore, now most salt was collected from evaporated pools around the Dead Sea, which is really salty, if you don't know about that. Once this water would evaporate, it would leave behind the salt. But sometimes other impurities would get in, and so the salt would work for a little while, but it eventually wouldn't last as long as pure salt. The salt had been infected by such impurities, and so therefore it wouldn't make the distance, so to speak. Once it was seen for what it really was, as impure salt, it would be thrown out as worthless. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. It's a warning to us to say that if you follow Jesus, the Jesus of your imagination, you will quickly run out of gas. You will fall away. You will lose your saltiness too quickly. And what do you do with salt that loses its saltiness? It gets thrown out. Throwing out salt that loses its saltiness is not something the baker or the farmer takes joy in because salt was an immensely valuable commodity for their goods and services and products. In the same way, Jesus sees each of us as having immense value, not only as human beings loved by God, but possessing the ability and the capacity to bring value to Him as we journey with Jesus on this road, to show the love of God in Jesus Christ to those around us in the world. For just as salt plays the role of preserving things and seasoning things in this world, we as those who follow in the way of Jesus are the salt of the earth. As salt, we are like that healing balm in a broken world. Preserving the way of life of God intended us to live in Jesus Christ for a world that's living in chaos and has no idea how to move forward towards life and peace and hope. And so lest we decide flippantly, blindly to follow Jesus without reflecting on what it means and what costs we ought to pay. He warns us and prepares us because you have such immense value to him along this journey. 
but it would be such a shame if it would all go to waste because you didn't stop to think and reflect on what it might cost you to follow Jesus. And you ended up following the Jesus of your imagination and not the real Jesus. We saw at the beginning that there were a large crowd going with Jesus. Some of them, though, were following the Jesus of their imagination. They saw all the miracles, the promises, and thought, this is the right bandwagon to get on. He's going to come in. He's going to smash the Romans. He's going to reinstall the temple worship, and we're going to have life again as Jewish people in Israel. But it would seem the Jesus of their imagination would fail them. And when they were left with the real Jesus standing before Pilate, about to be crucified, that Jesus wouldn't cut it for them. And so I wouldn't be surprised if some of the crowd here in verse 25 end up being in the crowd in Luke 23 shouting, crucify him, crucify him. He's not what we thought he was. Unless we end up in that crowd, we must stop and reflect, am I following the Jesus of my imagination or the Jesus who says, take up your cross and follow me? Am I prepared to pay the cost of following this Jesus? Perhaps you've never thought too deeply about following Jesus before. You might come to church and you like the community, you might visit every now and then. And now after this talk, you thought, well, it's not for me. Thanks, see you later. I want easy and comfort. But before you think it's not worth it, I want to remind you, this journey ends in victory. Jesus will die, but he will rise again. He will be crowned as king and his kingdom of life and joy love and peace will be on this earth forever and ever all the brokenness we put right again all the evil will be rid of there'll be no more tears and no more crying if that sounds like a pretty good future to you and the question to you this morning is are you prepared to live the life of this kingdom right now in the present for the benefit of everyone in Bagala and beyond and are you prepared to do that even if it costs you greatly the comforts the secular West offer us. We all have immense value and that's why Jesus calls you to on this road with him because you all have something to offer to our world in desperate need of the love of Jesus. And we're called not to waste that value. Don't waste it. Reflect. Prepare yourself to follow the real Jesus who says, pick up your cross and follow me. Let us put away the Jesus of our imagination and start following the real Jesus. Let us carry the cross and look forward with great joy and hope for the kingdom that is coming, won by Jesus' death and resurrection.